This is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about the Paranoia role-playing game, which is an award-winning 1984 RPG about a dystopian AI-run society. And we'll talk about lessons that we've taken from that for our D&D and other horror games. All that and more today on Wandering DMs. Before we get into it, I will just remind everyone that, as always, uh, at the end of our show, there will be an after-party chat. So that's an hour-long video chat with uh, Dan and I and all of our patrons uh, over on our private Discord server. You can join in on that if you want by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Uh, join us at any tier level and you'll get access to the Discord server. And uh, set that up now so that uh, in an hour from now when we're going to go over there and have our private chat, uh, you'll be ready to go. Definitely. We'll look forward to that. And big thanks to Backwias today, as usual, checking in that our streams are working online. We appreciate that. Um, so, you know, Paul, when we, we we came up with this idea, and I realized you and I have both played Paranoia in the past, but we've never played together. And I don't think we've had the opportunity huh. to chat about our experiences, actually. We, occasionally, we might have brushed up against it on the show, but I actually was really yeah. looking forward to finally having a discussion with you about what you thought of Paranoia, frankly. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was doing some research for this show and going back and looking at the past editions and uh, the various printings of it, which I'm sure we'll go over. Um, but it came up with this kind of interesting take on the editions of Paranoia that even though it's set in the distant dystopian future, the fact is that it is satire and it's satire about current modern day things, politics, technology, etc. Uh, so each update of the game has actually had to change a bunch just based on oh. what the world is like when that edition came out, right? Okay. Like I found myself <laughs> playing with new players, right? And there's the old joke, like in the original edition, which came out in the 80s, there's a lot of stuff about communism, right? which was it's a big deal in 85. There, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 right? And, and, and later editions less so, right? And then you've got okay. also like trying to adapt to modern technology things. You have, you know, again, it's trying to envision this sci-fi future where, you know, you have all these Star Trek-y, whatever kind of technologies advance, but there's some things that they just couldn't predict in 85, like the idea that we would all have tiny, you know, communication devices and the internet in our pockets, right? And so in later editions, you start to see stuff show up that's like, you know, and, and stuff that's making fun of this, right? That like, you know, the, the communists go away and now terrorists are a thing. And then, you know, terrorists go, I think if they printed a new edition right now, like AI would be much more prevalent, right? <laughs> well, that they kind of did predict. Uh, that, that, I mean, that always has been the essence of friend yeah, computer yeah. running a dystopian underground, probably post-apocalyptic city um, kind of thing. So that they actually sort of, freakishly nailed um yeah uh it's interesting because i have only I, i'm so glad you said that because i've actually i'll confess i've only run the first edition from 1984 and uh you know interestingly That's this box the, set great, i assume you're talking about 
Precisely, precisely. Which I have yep. never read, never played, never seen. Really? Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah. Really? And that's, yep. for me, that's the only one I've ever played. That's the only, well, that's um, fascinating. That's certainly gonna skew us in an interesting direction in this conversation. Fascinating, sure. fascinating. Um, and of course, you know, they've got the credits there on the on the box that we've got on screen. Uh, it's written by, you know, Greg Kostikin is obviously the first one I always think of who wrote it. Uh, there's Dan Gelber, there's Eric Goldberg. Um, and, um, you know, Paranoia was released in 1984. It won the Origins Award that year for best uh, new role playing game. You know, it's fine. I have I never thought about this until today. Is, is it a coincidence that it was released? to match George Orwell's 1984 novel? Is that, Ooh. Ooh. was that intentional? I don't know, I don't know if that's a coincidence or intentional. I don't know, couldn't answer that, is that's that, fascinating. Is, is that totally obvious that it has never occurred to me for like <laughs> 40 years at this point? Um, uh, viewers, feel free to tell us if that was, if that, if you knew that that was intentional. You know, 1984 was a big, big year for games, right? Uh, the, you know, it's AD&D um, hardcover supplements were coming out. Uh, some of the big adventures were coming out. That is, I think, when the second box set of Star Frontiers was released. Marvel Superheroes was released all in 1984. So for me, there was like a lot of new games coming out um, at the time. Uh, you know, Gygax was about to get ejected from TSR the next year. So it was kind of a revolutionary moment. Um, and I will say, you know, I've never been a player. So as usual, I've been an always DM. And at least in my uh, social circle from grammar school to high school, what would usually happen is that someone would, would see a role playing game that was new they wanted to try out, buy it and just hand it off to me to run. So I was routinely getting box sets from other people that were, they were saying, Dan, run this for me. Um, and that's how I got my hands on this box set right here. And as usual, I actually don't know what the experience is to be a player in Paranoia. I only know what it's like to be the computer. <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, frankly, let's see. I. Hmm. I'm trying to think of when I've played Paranoia, actually, because here's, here's my history with Paranoia. I've certainly been aware of it for a long time. Love the setting, right? I've always loved the setting. This, yeah. this you right. know, dystopian, futuristic setting that's just full of, you know, dark humor and, um, you know, and satire. And the, 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 for folks who don't know, the players are kind of... Um, it's a, it's a very highly competitive RPG, right? Which is very rare for RPGs. That the players are actively um, encouraged to plot against each other, and um, and and it's and it's just in this ridiculous, humorous way, right? Uh, so I've I've always enjoyed that. No, one, I, I've been I don't I've been aware of it for a very long time, but I had never played it. And it wasn't until I was in college in the mid to late 90s when I finally was like, all right, well, I'm just going to get a copy and I'm going to figure this game out. Right. So that's so it's um, my first edition. Um, my first edition, I think, probably would have been uh, what's called fifth edition. Right. Um, let's see if I can get a picture of fifth edition up here. Uh, I think it's this one. Yeah, there we go. It is. Yeah. Uh, now, interestingly, of course, this 
the, fifth, the, the fact that it's called fifth edition itself is a joke. There was no third or fourth edition, right? We jumped straight from second to fifth. Um, also, I don't think fifth edition was very well received. Um, I've, heard, I've heard that it's, it's sometimes called an unproduct um, because it would just did so, so poorly. <laughs> Uh, let me just cruise over, just because I found this fascinating, Dan. Now, neither you nor I are going to have any... I'm sorry. I'm, wow, I'm really uh, all over the map this morning. My point being, I bought the game, ran it myself for some friends. Um, over the course of years, I've continued to buy new editions, again, because I've always loved the setting and never been totally happy with the rules, frankly. Yep, and, yep, yep. Like um, and, and I'm trying to think if I've ever just been a straight player, and I think the answer is no. I don't think that I've ever played. I think your life has always been, a, been the computer. Ever been a session at HelgaCon where somebody else was running that you played in? Not, I'm not recalling that. Okay. 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 I'm not okay. Recalling that. Yeah. 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 So okay. So real quick, here's here's the second edition, which we're probably not going to talk about very much. Uh, came out in '87, um, but I, it is interesting. And again, this I want to bring this up just because I, I was reading the Wikipedia article on it, and I find this fascinating. Um, the second edition included a lot of options for the meta plot, including uh, you're in a, a computerless alpha complex. Mm -hmm. There's no computer; doesn't appear. Right, that you're in a, um, a secret society wars. Um, there's uh, you know there's there's uh, there's maybe the computer exists, but it's battling for control with other factions. Mm -hmm. um, and generally, my understanding is that. Players didn't really like a lot of these other weird settings. I would, I, I got to admit, you know, I, I re remember this product coming out. And again, this is only three years after the first edition came out. And, um, you know, it, it also looking at some commentary online uh, this weekend, one of the, th again, me knowing just first edition, one of the things that was pointed out is that the, the core books of first edition weren't so humorous. Uh, it was satirical, but it was a little bit more straight, dark dystopia. Oh, actually, interesting. And it okay. was okay. it was it pretty quickly after that. It was the adventures and the supplements that started to make it more outright comical. So, mm. second edition, to my understanding, kind of you know folded in the comedy aspect, the humor aspect, you know, the core books, and you know certainly as as an outside player the thing that would aggravate me a little bit about these meta plot options is now it sort of fractures the player base. Whereas initially you say, I'm playing paranoia. We all know that it's a tyrannical overlord AI running everything. And we know what that is. Now every play group might have a completely different interpretation or take on it. Um, so it kind of, that made put a kind of bit of a sour taste in my mouth when the, when they were running this meta plot and, you know, every supplement you come out with now changes the campaign. Um, so eh, it's not my favorite move for publishing. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so I want to I want to talk about that. I'm going to jump forward. So, so the, the I guess the fourth version after fifth edition, the fourth version of the game was this Paranoia mm -hmm. XP. That's that's the I have the copy of that here in my hand. Great. This is what I played the most. Um, and um, it actually came up with, it had three styles of play in it. It had a straight, classic, and zap. And it called, it, it, and the weird, so straight, straight was a like more serious 
um, you know, focused on satire more. Um, players were punished for not like filing the right forms before executing another clone, etc. Um, the claim on on uh, in the uh, Wikipedia article here is that it's poor for one shots, but good good for ongoing campaigns. Classic is supposedly more aligned with what you saw in second edition, where um, it's a little more a little more comical, but but more what we all think of as paranoia. And then Zap, which is complete like slapstick, just over the top in the in the in this in the silliness. Um, so. Uh, interesting side note about this version is uh, Microsoft complained about the title, and eventually the XP oh. was removed in a reprint, and it was oh, just really? called Paranoia. Yeah, really. I still have oh, my, my I still have my XP version, but yeah, apparently my, Microsoft uh, made a claim. Oh, wait, made a claim wait, wait, against wait, them. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> but, but, but Microsoft took XP from role playing games in the first place. The whole reason I use XP is was, was short for experience. What? How, how does that make sense? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you I, find, but if you find editions, uh, it's still easiest to search for as Paranoia XP, but you'll find later prints of it drop the XP. Bizarre. Completely yeah. bizarre. <laughs> you know, I will say the one, the one credit I'll give to Paranoia 5th edition with the joke about skipping editions is that also predicted Microsoft skipping versions from, from Windows 8 to 10, right? That actually happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. For a dumb technical reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Crazy. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, and then more, more recently, I'll just jump ahead a little bit. More recently, there's this edition, uh, which is called the Red Clearance Edition, uh, which was put out on Kickstarter I have here. Cool. Humorously uh, white, white print on a white box. Let's... <laughs> uh, you can kind of maybe you see the title there. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Now I will point out to, to viewers, right? So the um, uh, the the alpha complex, right? The the setting, the standard setting in paranoia has everybody um, uh, divided up into hierarchies, security clearances with color names. So like on the cover right here, you see that your, your base level troubleshooter is wearing red and the person that's about to shoot them, I guess, has a red colored laser they're gonna shoot them with. And so the, the, the colors go, there, there's infrared for the peons that aren't even, that are NPCs. And then it goes red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, and then ultraviolet, which is the top level, which is represented by white. So the joke in that box is only the highest level clearance can see what's on it. <laughs> right. In fact, but you're not allowed says, to I mean, see what's on it. You you can't. You, I, I'm having trouble getting the camera to pick it up. But what what it actually says is paranoia right. with the logo, and it says ultraviolet edition, which is confusing because right. that's of course not the name of this edition. It's called the Red Clearance Edition, and it's very hard to search for if you try to call it ultraviolet edition because that's not what? its name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I remember having a lot of trouble, and then I, I sometimes I would I would Google search for the Kickstarter because like it's the only one that was put out on Kickstarter, so. It's, it's very confusing. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I've been amused by Paranoia for 40 years running, and it still, it still hits the right note of, like, they intentionally made it hard to find. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. You can't yeah. search for it on Google. Awesome. You can't um, see it on our so show. I would say I really like this edition of the, of the okay. game. This is a really nice edition. 
um, it leans much harder into a more rules-light, more improv style of play, which I think Paranoia needs. And we can get we can get into that discussion if you want. But I'm kind of curious, I guess, from your experience playing first edition, my impression of first edition, having not actually even read it myself, is that it's basically kind of D&D-esque mechanics, but just then with paranoia I, setting on top. Okay, to me at the time in 1984, it was novel in a bunch of ways. And uh, yeah. I kind of actually wanted to talk about rules um, to paranoia, mm -hmm. particularly right. where I don't know the later ones. Now, unfortunately, um, you know, in paranoia, knowing the rules is itself forbidden. Right is an is an official yes. rule in paranoia. Unfortunately, all the viewers are going to have to get terminated at the end of the <laughs> show, and you're going to have to bring in your clones immediately following Excellent. the show. So I do apologize so, for that bit of pleasantness. We'll we'll send out a link uh, for everyone to fill out the self termination forms uh, at the end of the show, uh, <laughs> just because uh, it's hard to collect that much data. So if everyone just kindly fill that out, we'll uh, get to the terminations ASAP. It is appreciated, yes. <laughs> Go on. So, Thank you for so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So, uh, you know, paranoia. So it's, it's dystopian science fiction. Uh, the first edition is all run in percentiles, right? Which, is, which I oh, think is... Oh, percentiles, a percentile game. Okay. Right? So, which is which I think is more common for games at the time. Like I at the time, I'm used to the Boot Hill Western was percentiles. The Star Frontiers science fiction game from TSR was percentiles. Paranoia's percentiles. So, on the one hand, I think a lot of people would say it's common for sci-fi games to run on a percentile basis because it kind of uh, echoes the metric system and decimalization stuff like that that we expect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, but I mean, frankly, if you Marvel superheroes was run on a percentile system in 1984. So frankly, if you'd come to me in 1984 and said, what are role playing games going to look like in the future? I would have very easily guessed they're all going to be percentile systems because that's what it looks like everything's going towards nowadays. Um, and, and, and there are some there are some parts of my design heart, frankly, that even now wish that the path of role playing games had been percentile based because to me there's a lot of advantages to it actually so obviously you have target numbers there are tables of like modifiers to hit and you have to roll percentile dice under your target number as is the case for all those systems um so you can possibly have a lot of fiddly right i mean paranoia wasn't the most complicated thing on the market but you could have a bunch of fiddly tables of like you're running or you're dodging, you're hiding, or it's your second shot or your first shot, and you've or you've aimed for a round and pluses and minuses and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. The other the other thing is that unlike D and D, right? Unlike the class system in D and D, paranoia had a, a skill tree system, which I think is arguably more realistic. I guess. And you could pick a couple of skills and then at, later on, if assuming your character survived, you could pick on additional skills in the same branching tree that get more and more specific. Um, I actually do have, I have a featured image of the skill tree or like half of the skill tree system in Paranoia First Edition. There you go. So you get some basic skills at the top. Mm -hmm. yep, yep, totally, 
totally. Um, and uh, again, this is why everyone's going to have to get terminated after the show. Um, so as, assuming that your character develops, you can pick more and more um, specific skills as you move down the trees there for weapons or tech or possibly medical stuff or survival or stuff like that. And this, I mean, to me, I think this might have been, I mean, I can't remember if this was before or after Star Frontiers, which was a little bit similar, but it felt like a breath of fresh air. And again, it felt at the time like, oh, this is what all role-playing games are going to be like in the future, because this is obviously more realistic. This is obviously more real-world based. Um, and to me at the time, this was kind of um, a revelation that you could have a game entirely classless and more freeform mm. and more flexible your characters in theory, right? You can, you can mix and match however you want. So it, it's, you know, I would have, I, based on this game at the time, I would have made very different guesses about what role-playing publications were gonna be looking like that turned out not to be the case ultimately. Cause a lot of games aren't like this nowadays. Let me, let me ask you this question, Dan, when you ran Paranoia, were you running it as a campaign or as a one-shot? I think it, it was or, as a campaign, actually, in theory. Okay, interesting. Yeah, in theory, uh, did, did it, did it yeah, work out right. that way? <laughs> yeah, there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot of sessions, and obviously, as our as our viewers are you know well known, characters didn't let live that long. Um, yeah. So there wasn't as as Josh just said. That's a what you were looking at for the skill tree. That's a completely useless chart, as if anybody survived to advance. Um, so I think I had characters. Similar to a game that we recently played, Paul, you know, maybe someone reaches orange level, the second level up. Maybe someone reaches yellow level. That's that's as far as so, I saw anybody ever get. I mean, because that's interesting to me, like the XP edition, right? It talks about here's these different styles, and this style more favors campaign play, whereas this style is better for one-shots. Um, but for me, and again, this, is, this might just be personal taste, but for me, much like horror games, uh, I've only ever run Paranoia as one-shots. And I don't like the idea, frankly, of a campaign of paranoia. Just like I don't like the idea of a campaign of horror. I don't foresee a long future for my characters in those styles of games. I think like the point of those games for me is to watch the, the, the party collapse. <laughs> for, me, for, for me, for me, makes so much sense, right? For me in 1984, yeah, yeah. I don't think the idea of a one-shot had occurred to me. I don't think that there okay. were there weren't texts, there weren't books, there weren't adventures that yeah. specifically said that. I guess you could infer it from like tournament adventures, but the the idea literally hadn't crossed my mind. Now that you say it, yes, that's exactly what paranoia should be. It's basically comedy horror. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I want from it. Um, and and so so this is going to border a little bit into into some of my design sensibilities here for uh, Fearful yeah. Ends, which uh, some of you have maybe been noticing on my blog. I've been posting more about Fearful Ends. Uh, Kickstarter's coming very soon, very soon. Um, so um, that's, um, you know, I, I know that like Call of Cthulhu can be in theory played campaign style, but I've literally never done it. And, and the more I think about it, the more I don't want to do it, right? I want, yeah. um, I want to have these stories that we're crafting together to be about the disintegration of the group, right, or of the individual, um, and that's that's what's fun about paranoia for me is, yeah, I like the players digging into you know backstabbing each other and whatnot, and kind of having having a good time, you know, with a wink in their eye, uh, you know, screwing each other over. 
I will also say partly in my defense, right, that in first edition, there is a lot of uh, ink uh, spent on what appears to be advancements. Okay, you got the whole security clearance ladder, right, which is with particular experience points to um, achieve them. You have that whole skill tree um, set up. Every single mm-hmm. secret society has a fairly elaborate leveling system. And, and I, I wouldn't remember that if I hadn't just looked at the book today, but you look at any particular secret society, level one provides you with this, level two to three, you do this, level four, five, six, you get this access. Um, so the overall, um, you know, what they're communicating is quite a bit of advancement in paranoia. And if that was refined out later, that would make a hell of a lot of sense. I, I think by the by the time you get into uh, into this version, that stuff's mostly gone. Got it. That's right. Right, and then and even in the XP version, again, there's a lot. I think a lot of, as I recall, it's been a while since I read that book, but um, there's a lot of uh, ink spent there on like, well, for classic, do this, but for XP, do that, or not XP for uh, straight or straight or classic mm-hmm. or zap, do these things, right? And I think. Certainly, Zap and possibly Classic are kind of pointing you in the direction of no, this, you're not going to survive to advancement. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, what are, what so anyway, go on. Sorry. What are the mechanics like after first edition? Is it is it still percentile? Did they change that? Again, my my memory of XP is hazy, so mostly I'm going to talk about the Red Clearance Edition, which is a dice pool and cards. There are a lot of cards. Oh. Cards are used for a lot of things in, in brilliant ways. And there's a lot of expectation of improvisation because random card draws are going to happen. Random card. So, so when I've run it a couple of times, one of the things I really like about it is that it is very rules-like and it is uh, enabling you more. Let me make more of this comparison, I think, of paranoia to, to horror. I think in both these styles of games, when at least when I run them, the idea usually is whatever plot exists is more or less inevitable, right? In, in horror, the, the tentacle monsters are going to destroy the city. Yes, maybe there's an outside chance that the players can overcome it, or at least survive it, but it is small. <laughs> it is a very narrow chance, and probably tentacle powers are going to destroy the city. In Paranoia, the mission is a farce, right? The, the computers ask you to do something either impossible or stupid. Pointless. Mm-hmm. And right. the, the control that we have, therefore, is not in what happens in terms of the plot of what we're trying to accomplish, but the, the control that you have as a player is in the personal advancement of your character, the, the personal, or not advancement, that's a poor way to put it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the personal arc for your character, how does your character react to discovering either the horrors or the, or the, or the foolishness of what you're up against? And you know how do they react to it, and how do they adapt, and how do they survive or not? So I like I like games that that allow the person running the game to basically say like, eh, the plot's kind of uh, almost on rails here. It, what's going to happen is what's going to happen, and the players, and then and then the players throw crazy monkey wrenches, right? So that's usually what happens in those games for me is that. They're almost harder to plan for because my expectation is the players are going to take it into left field. They're going to do weird, weird stuff, and I'm just going to have to roll with it and figure it out. Cool, cool. And so I think I think the last, the most recent edition does much more in enabling that. Interesting. 
there's like a lot of specific rules about how like you can, you know, requisition equipment. And, and the response to that is great. Draw a card from the equipment deck. What did the, okay. what, what does the computer actually give you? Oh, hmm, this thing, great. Uh, then there's there's some and there's some funny bits of business in it too. So like for example, I have a deck of cards here for um, for the secret societies. So just during character creation, right? And okay. and and as as the runner of the game, you're encouraged to show them like look. Most most of them just say no secret society. Oh, right? so, like, oh, oh, you know, oh, oh, that's what you're going to be not, not in a secret society. You're, you're not going to be in it. Well, no, of course not. Look, see, Dan, see, no secret society. So, so like, pro maybe one of you is going to draw a secret society card. Probably oh. not. Most, like, secret societies oh. are super rare. We're not going to see them. Okay, now I'm going to now I'm going to take these two cards and put them aside, shuffle, and deal out. Oh, yeah, that's right. Those that was the only two cards that say no secret society, and I don't tell the players that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that delightful? Like I love, I love how the mechanics of this game. Um, yeah, I love how the mechanics of this game uh, <laughs> you know, encourage. You know the 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 style that that we want, right? <laughs> So now everybody, That's like especially if you're playing with newbies, they may not realize that you've just lied horribly to them. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> That's great. And I don't know, there's something really perfect about Paul, you running that and needing to do like a, a card magic trick in order to pull that off. Um, <laughs> that couldn't be more perfect. Wow. Okay. I love it. That's kind of genius. Yeah. So there you okay. go. You tricked me. Nice, when, you, when you showed me those cards, I was like, oh, this edition, most people aren't in a secret society. What's up with that? You totally tricked me, and I even know about Paranoia. I'll give you, I'll give you another, another little bit from this game. There's this card, which says, you are number one. Okay. <laughs> let me, I'll just read to you some of this text, because I, I had to look it up. I'm like, okay, I'm within the rule book. Ah, here's the thing about the number one troubleshooter. It says, you might have noticed there's a card in the set marked number one troubleshooter. You might be wondering what it does. It does nothing. Nothing <laughs> mechanically. When a PC does something that you like, put your best computer voice on and award it to them for their outstanding achievements. <laughs> right? It goes on to encourage you to like really favor that person until you're bored and then take it away from them. And maybe give it to someone else. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Holy smoke. Wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. That really so there's a it. lot of that. In, in this in this in this uh, edition of the game, which I just I super love, I love it. Wow, wow. So you know, it's funny. It it really is funny how I mean, you know, living living in a society that is actually currently basically run by computer apps at this point. I mean, that really does feel like your daily existence, kind of a little bit too much. But uh, <laughs> wonder wonder mechanic to uh, conjure that. Wow, right. Right. So, so that's 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 good stuff. I very much like this edition. If I was going to run Paranoia again, I would run this edition. Except, not really. I have another edition that is my absolute favorite edition that Dan, you and I played recently, and it's yes. why we're talking about this today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for so for folks who don't realize, let's see if I can get an image of it up. I actually have a copy here by my side, but uh, which is my here. first experience of actually being even any kind of player in Paranoia and mm -hmm. getting. Getting hammered repeatedly. There you go. 
So this is the Paranoia Mandatory Bonus Fun card game, uh, which we played at my birthday for a little bit. Uh, this is this is coming out around the same area uh, era as XP. As you can tell, they just reused the art. Thanks. Yep. Yep. Great. Eh, eh, of course. Um, and it's a card game. It is not a role-playing game at all, right? It is a card game where we all play troubleshooters and everything is card-based. Um, and uh, you get trees and tokens, you have life tokens, which are basically hit points. Um, you have security clearance cards, which give you your security clearance, which tell you, you know, they affect the game mechanically a little bit. How many cards do you get? And, how much, how much health and how much trees and tokens? How much health can you take before you die, and how many trees and tokens can you take before you're declared a traitor? Um, I will say that the rules are not written very well, uh, or organizationally. Organizationally, it is often difficult when somebody says, like, oh, how does this mechanic work? And I go, oh, Jesus, let me flip through here and try to figure it out because the, the organization is not awesome. But in the spirit of the game, it gets it 100%, right. I think. 100%. Right? Like, it even begins, right, with that same classic joke in the beginning about, like, oh, do you want to know the rules? You're not allowed. You can't. Exactly. <laughs> it's above <laughs> your security clearance. Sorry. Not going to tell you how to play the game. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a lot of really nice stuff in here that's just... You know, and then most of this stuff comes out. Um, so there's, and it, it confuses the crap out of people, frankly, when we've sat down to play, especially people who don't know the setting, mm -hmm. right? There's right. a team leader, yes. and the team leader pulls a card from the mission deck that tells you what the mission is, and people think that the objective is to actually, like, complete the mission. But, of course, no, the mission is a joke. It's, it's pointless, more or less. And it's just an excuse for us to blame each other and point the finger and generally do things to screw each other over. Um, so I will and, say, and you, you know, yeah. The I mean, whole so it's at the end to have the highest security clearance. That's it. The end. Right. 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 And I'll say, you know, so Paul here introduced this is not a role playing game, but role playing happens anyway. So very quickly, uh, even this card game there, <clears throat> we were horse trading and threatening and negotiating and making alliances and promises that were then broken and speaking in character. So, of course, with us and the people we know, we were immediately in character anyway. But yeah. so it kind of it really felt like paranoia, but just mechanics that were being worked out entirely with the cards, um, which which didn't feel bad at all. Yeah, let me um, I'll give you an example here because the, the, the booklet, the rule booklet is very short, right? I mean, is it 16 pages and it, and it doesn't it doesn't tell you to role play, right? It doesn't outright say, yeah. hey, you should pretend to be these characters and do these silly things. But. Just, let me read you one of my favorite little sections of rules here, where it's talking about security clearances. And it says, under no circumstances may higher security clearance players order lower security clearance players to go fetch snacks and then plot their demise when they are out of the room. Similarly, lower security clearance players are not allowed to plot the death of the overbearing higher security clearance players who ordered them out of the room to begin with. <laughs> Right, which is like your classic mechanism in any game to say, like, how do you get your players to do a thing? Tell them they're not allowed to do it. Right? Don't go down the well, Dan. What do, what do we do? We go down the well immediately. <laughs> immediately do that thing. Immediately down the well. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a lesson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I we played this game at my birthday party. There was 
too many of us, frankly, we we oh we maxed out and went yep. over the recommended number of players. It still worked. Um, yep. we, several people were maybe had a few too many drinks. It still worked. It was fine. It was fun. <laughs> people enjoyed backstabbing each other. I will say the one thing I would recommend if you are going to play this game is to cut the number of clones in half. It says that everybody should get six clones. I think that's just classic paranoia. Mm -hmm. Um, like that's always been the case in, in, in the paranoia world forever. Cut it in half, make it three. Game runs more smoother. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. That was a nice, I, I, when, when you said to do that, I just assumed that was in the rules to begin with, but now that that's the right choice. Three, you know, three is the magic number. Kind of gives you three beats like that. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It means you're not going to see the very high security clearances, right? You're probably going to make it to orange at best. Yep. Yep. But that's fine. Yep. Right. Whatever. We'll can. Now, some people will end the game not having beat red, but whatever. <laughs> and to be perfectly clear, there, you know. yeah, and, and to be perfectly clear, what happens is, I mean, the missions actually are accomplishable, right? They're not, they're not literally impossible. You can actually accomplish the missions. Um, and what's going to happen is one mission's one round, more or less, and players will lose up to one clone per mission. So what is, if you do get drilled, you're out for the rest of that one mission round, and then you pull another mission and you pull on your, your next clone. So that all feels, it, it's interesting that I, I actually like the fact that you you do actually suffer being out of the game briefly, and that, and that you can only lose one clone on a particular mission feels right to me, so. Yeah, and with, you're gonna see three, a couple of missions, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's nice that you're you're probably gonna see at least three, right? Because frankly, the game ends when somebody runs out of clones, when right? Right. So it's not right. It kind of has that quasi elimination, but like you don't keep playing the game after somebody's lost their last clone, right? That that in fact signals the end. So in fact, you're kind of encouraged to keep those people. If you're not winning, you don't want someone to lose their last clone, oh. right? <laughs> well, that's a that's advanced strategy, Paul. That's clever. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have immediately seen that actually. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of you'd be like, "Oh, I'm not ready for the game to end yet. I want to find a way to be ahead." Yeah, yeah. Great, great, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, I think it really gets the spirit. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, sorry, it sounded like you had a you had a thought. I want to. Yeah. Okay. I want to. I want to. Um, I guess I want to criticize first edition in a couple ways. There's one specific, and I apologize because as usual with me, this is a very de detailed mechanical issue. But there's one thing about first edition that to me almost broke the whole promise of the game. And that is the, 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 co the specific combat charts um, that you start out with. So I have, I have a screenshot, it's mostly white, Paul, of the, the combat chart. And this is very small and viewers can't see it, but you can, you can look up in the rule book later on. So what happens is characters start at red level, right? Red level is basically first level and the the you know the promise of the game is there's going to be mass mayhem and you, you're going to you know backstab other troubleshooters and the primary thing that everybody starts off with is you start off with a red laser and you start off with red reflective armor which is the coveralls that you see in all the art and red reflective armor protects you somewhat from lasers of red level and below right and hopefully later on if you can get to yellow level, levels, yellow security clearance, you're going to have reflective armor that protects against yellow lasers and orange lasers and red lasers, right? But to begin with, everybody's red and red on the team. 
And so if you look at um, the things that I kind of marked off in red here at the very top, the top right, the regular red hand laser, right? Any hand laser does level eight damage is what it says. And then if you look at the very bottom of this chart, reflective armor for the colors that it protects you against subtracts four from that damage level. So if I'm red, if in first edition, if I'm red level and I shoot you with a red laser and you've got reflect red reflective armor, I'm gonna be rolling on the level four damage table. And that's what I have uh, highlighted there in the middle. And the, the, the level four damage table, it's almost impossible to wound anybody. Um, mm -hmm. And the specifics of that, that chart are, you, you actually, you know, first of all, you have to roll the hit, which I'm not talking about. But if I hit a red person with a red laser, you roll the damage is I roll percentile one through 60 is nothing. 61 through 85 is stun for one round, right? 86 through 95 is a wound and 96, only 96 to 100 is incapacitation. It's actually impossible to outright kill somebody, right? Mm. And even wound them, you've got to roll above an 85. So in my limited experience with first edition paranoia, if the, the, the red troubleshooter team starts having the mass shootout, 85% um, of the time, the, the shots are not doing anything effectively. And you, I just, I sit there with this ongoing combat of like, well, nothing's really happening. What are we going to do now? Which is not remotely what the art communicates or what the game communicates. So I feel that that is, I don't know, was that different in later editions? I mean, I know that's super specific, but if I was red and you were red and I shot you with my red laser, was I, am I equally unable to injure you? That is a good question. Um, very and I'm not, I don't know the answer to this off the top of my head. I'd have to go digging through the rules. Yeah. But I feel like in all the, and this is a case where I'm not sure if, if this is by the rules or me bending them. And certainly my preference is that everyone just deals damage to each other all the time. Right. And so um, my in all the games I've run, anytime players decide to start shooting each other, it's pretty much one shot kills somebody. That's what <laughs> so. I expected. And as usual, you know, yeah. at the, in 84, when I started running the game, I didn't inspect the table statistically like this. So I start running the game. The first gunfight starts happening like, oh, everybody's going to shoot each other. And then I get into this long, unstoppable sequence of the lasers just bouncing off everybody's armor. Um, and I was like, well, what is that's what <laughs> what's happening now? <laughs> so um, I feel like that's a possibly a mechanical glitch in first edition. Eh? Yeah, probably, probably. I remember being troubled by that. The, the, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like that's got to be true. I mean, and certainly, I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely got the idea of that mayhem was key in this game right away. And so, even if even if not, even if the mechanics were such that red lasers didn't really hurt red armor, I mean, there was always plenty of like things in the environment that were way more deadly than the lasers, right? So there right. was right, always access to something that was immediately lethal, if desired. Right, right. <laughs> and, and Josh is pointing that out in the chat is probably in the uh, equipment gathering phase, the requisition phase, which in first edition, the adventures, you know, were 
um, explicitly written per scenario. They weren't randomized or anything like that. Um, you probably got a couple. I mean, in my experience, you probably got a couple things that were kind of dangerous, like a grenade or you know, hopefully a plasma rifle or something like that. Even that, I think I remember people throwing grenades. And again, this table doesn't really have super great results anywhere. So I remember people throwing grenades and having no effect. And I think I remember people like having a couple of rounds of laser fire and then just like, I guess, can I grapple or can I knife them? And that actually is a better huh. option. And so you wind up, huh. you wind up yeah. wrestling each other instead. I, well, and I feel like that is common. I guess I, I feel like I've seen a lot of games where like people are being shoved out of airlocks or into food vets or otherwise <laughs> like yeah, body checked into something that's truly horrific, like a horrific comical death. I think is is common in the games I ran. Again, not sure if that's just the, the the types of adventures I was drawn to, or if the the game is actually pushing that. I feel like it is. I feel like the the last the most recent edition really pushes in that direction. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, um, when you were running, Dan, how how many players did you have? If you grew up, if you uh, recall, I, I I think I remember sessions at uh, my house with you know eight to ten around the table. I think. Um, okay. Yeah. That's, so a, the, that's a big group. Yeah. That's and th and that's one of the things I like about this card game, and one of the reasons it often comes out is for me, uh, right? So it, per the box, it's for three to eight players. So not a lot of games out there supporting eight players. Pretty quick to teach the rules. So and pretty fast paced for a game with eight people at the table or more. Yeah. As we stretched it, right? We we I don't remember how many we had ten or eleven people at the table playing this thing, and it was fine. Um, and I like that. I like that the card game produces that. Now, if I was going to play the role-playing game, I would actually want to cut the troubleshooting team down. Right now, I think classically it's sure. for like six players, right? Because that's that's the number of uh, what is it? What do they call it? Bonus um, the mandatory bonus assignments or whatever they're called. Uh, mandatory bonus duties, right? Things like um, uh, being the, the the team leader or the the um, happiness officer or the the equipment guy. I can't remember how many roles there are, but I think it's it's six. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's classically, it's six. I find even six players difficult to manage in a game of paranoia. And and the reason for that is it's very taxing on, on the GM, right? Because the players are plotting against each other. A lot of times they want to communicate privately to the GM, or the GM's got to just juggle a lot of things happening all at the same time. Players are reacting to each other. Players are coming up with strategies or, 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 you know, um, plots to undermine each other. And so, well, on the individual player side, it might feel a little slow because they're like, I'm trying to get this thing done. And, you know, I, I get one sixth of the GM's time, whereas the GM is probably feeling overloaded because they're just constantly bombarded by all the players and all the things they want to do. Sure. Uh, so my inclination, if I was going to run a straight, uh, run of the RPG, not straight in terms of the Paranoia XP's thing, but if I was going to run the RPG, again, I would probably want three or four players at most. That makes sense. That's, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Did you find that to be true? Was there like a lot of note passing and a lot of side conversations and... 
that kind of thing when you're running the game? The funny thing is this, there's a particular session that I actually videotaped at the time. And the gag was, and like our friend Adam's done a similar thing running Paranoia, is make a lot of props, right? So I made a whole yeah. bunch of props for all the stuff that was being handed out. And specifically, if anybody didn't have it at the end, have the physical thing on their player, they were going to get penalized. And so one of the, you know, the extra roles you're talking about is someone is in game is supposed to have a recording device, like a Star Trek tri-recorder to record all the activity. And so for the prop at the time, I gave that person an actual VHS camcorder. So in, nice. in game, in person, someone recorded the game and I do have it on an old VHS tape here somewhere. Um, uh, I think, um, let me talk about that session. Okay. Let me, let me talk okay. about that. Let me talk about that particular session. So I ran, uh, among the adventures I ran was a published adventure called the yellow clearance black box blues. And I think I have that cover for that in our featured images today. Cause I, I knew I wanted to talk about this and this is uh released one year after the original game the first edition of the game um it won the uh the, as you can see in the little starburst there it won the best role-playing adventure at origins uh from 1985 which is called the hg wells award for for best adventure there um it's written by uh, mr john m ford who is himself an award-winning sci-fi author he won the, the World Fantasy Award for science fiction writing. He, a very acclaimed author, he was actually acclaimed by both Robert Jordan and Neil Gaiman as the best writer that they knew. So kind of a coup that West End Games got him to write this adventure. I believe it's the only actual adventure that John M. Ford ever wrote. He also wrote a source book for, for FASA Star Trek that was for Klingons that was so influential it actually got folded into Paramount Canon later on. <clears throat> but I think this is the only adventure he ever wrote, award-winning. This is the worst role-playing session I ever experienced in my life mm. that I ever ran. And the problem is, and there's like four scenarios in the book, and the, the problem is the first one starts off with, and I think it's called the dance routine from hell. And look, I could be crazy. Other people could have had a wonderful time with this. But basically, the point is the troubleshooter team is sent into the food vats because someone's trying to sabotage it. And the, the troubleshooters themselves get drugged and engage in a spastic, uh, out-of-control dance routine. And that's the scenario. And so... John M. Ford's a great writer. Okay, you read this. This is this is hilariously funny. The, the troubleshooters are dancing on the catwalks and they're falling into the vats and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I can see why it won the award and why I wanted to write it, why I wanted to run it because it's a wonderfully well-written scenario. And you start playing it and the players have nothing to do. The entire scenario is me as referee trying to amuse the players with all the stuff, all the funny stuff that they're doing that they don't have a choice about. Yeah. So it turned into a real drag and I didn't see it coming in advance and it really became, and th this is obvious now, this is the kind of truths you can find online that people are gonna tell you before you referee. But for me, I had to run into it in person and the lesson is players need autonomy. 
they need to have interesting choices. Um, mm -hmm. And I run, I ran smack dab into that brick wall unintentionally, but learned my lesson that I clearly wasn't going to do that again. And the fact that, you know, a, a game is all about interesting choices for the players. And at least the, the intro scenario to this adventure, the whole point to it is it absolutely takes it away. I saw in, I saw in the Wikipedia article that that might have become a normal canonical thing for paranoia is that the missions or the scenarios are specifically the players can't do anything or their best strategy is not to do anything. And yeah. I don't know, that seems surprising to me, but boy, that session from this adventure was a real disaster for mm -hmm. me. See, I think this, this for me, this gets back to it. Now, uh, granted, I haven't read this adventure and maybe it falls into some terrible pitfalls here about like certainly taking agency away from the players and saying, You're, you do this, that's terrible. Yep. Right? I think I, just yep. outright, I'll just say that's terrible. Um, but I would say, again, similar to horror, in most of my games of paranoia, yes, the, the, the plot, is like this impossible thing that you can do nothing about and probably your best choice would be to just sit at home and do nothing but you're encouraged actively encouraged to not do that and and then the fun is all the crazy choices the players do make right which will inevitably lead to failure right let me i'll tell you about the most recent game i ran and apologize and, and, and it's funny because i just pulled up my notes to this game um let me and get, let me just get one to... point in before yeah. we get off that. I'm sorry, Paul. Yeah. The, the, yeah. And, and the lesson two of two from that is that fiction writing is not the same thing as adventure writing. You can be, mm, you can yeah, be the best sure. novelist in the world, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to write a good adventure. They are different writing tasks. And, um, you know, uh, there, there, there can be some publications that are fun to read that some people collect that don't make for good actual run experiences. I mean, you're, you know, and... and you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's like the encapsulation of Dragonlance, right? <laughs> uh, great, great novel. Loved reading it. Would not run those, those scenarios. Um, okay, let me compare this to, to the last time I ran a paranoia at a convention. The convention specifically had an outer space theme, like a sci-fi outer space, you know, whatever, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, what have you kind of theme. And they were encouraging us to write stuff for that. So I ran a game of Paranoia, which instead of appearing in Alpha Complex, uh, was set in Alpha Station, right? So it's a space station, fine. Other than that, it's still Alpha Complex, right? It's Alpha Station. And the basic plot, and I'm just looking at my notes here, I literally have two, just two pages of notes to myself because I was trying to lean into, mostly I'm just gonna improvise. Mostly I'm just gonna improvise and let the players do whatever they want. Um, but the, the setup is this. Uh, an asteroid field, or some asteroids kind of ran through Alpha Station recently, disrupted, and broke a piece of the station off. And the computer's freaking out, and so it has, you know, grabbed a bunch of random clones, promoted them to Red Clarence, and said, go, go retrieve the broken part and return it to Alpha Station. That's your job. And, and the, the joke and the impossibility of it is if they manage to get to a shuttle and fly out there and locate the missing piece and, and discover it and, and, and are prepared to bring it home. It turns out that the asteroids kind of broke the thing near in half. And the missing piece is as big, if not bigger, than the piece they just left. And because they're now <laughs> separated, it's running its own copy of the computer. Maybe it's even got its own oh. team that's out to go retrieve the broken part. 
Right. Oh, right. No. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of two <laughs> alpha stations running side by side at this point. Oops. Uh, oh, and no. there's no way you can't, it's not, you, your shuttle's not going to tow this piece back, right? It's just not possible. It's huge and ridiculous. And, and, and I have a note here to myself that just says in the debriefing, when you get to the debriefing scene, success is only achieved if the two parts were reunited. Very unlikely outcome. Right. <laughs> Assuming the players survive, the debrief can take place on either of the two alpha stations. And that's it. That's really? it. Right? So, like, I, I gave them an impossible test. I don't expect them to... Maybe, I'm open to the idea. If they come up with something brilliant, sure, I guess maybe they're able to restore the station into a hole and, you know, and still probably get punished for it for some reason, because that's, that's, right. that's how paranoia goes in my, in my mind. Um, when I, and then, and then, I, and then, yes, I leaned into props. Oh, I wanted to talk about props more, but we're so running out of time. Uh, I'll just say this. My favorite prop trick is to simply take a table and turn it into physical objects. So, for example, you have a list of equipment you want to give your players. Uh, I gave my props guy a giant duffel bag full of boxes, empty boxes, just little cardboard boxes assembled. Each one had a number written on it. And he could pull it out or she could pull it out and pass the box to somebody. And they would tell me, I got box number 16. And I would look up and, oh, this is what's in it. Right. So it just Great. turned that table of equipment into the, and it was, it was a giant duffel bag. So it was like, here's your duffel bag <laughs> equipment guy. And they're holding this thing. Likewise, the happiness officer got a box of pills. They were just candies of different colors. And I had written down what each color did to you if you ate it. <laughs> it's funny how it for some reason paranoia seems to off. promote this, this prop usage. Because I've done that, you've done that, our other friends have done that kind of all independently. And it's weird that with this, this particular game yeah. turns into prop comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where that comes from. And I feel like, like if you talk to people, they always, I, I feel like I didn't invent it, right? I'd certainly heard from other people. Yeah. Oh, yes, I played this wonderful paranoia game. It had all these props. Right. I, it just seems like something that's in our collective consciousness that paranoia should have lots of props. I think there's a lot of emphasis, right? There's a lot of emphasis on the requisition equipment, right? And don't damage it. Don't mm -hmm. lose it. That's very important. And, you know, some of the books also have, you know, these jokey requisition forms that, you know, you might possibly actually copy and pass out at the table. So I think they kind of, yep. they kind of prime the pump for that action. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. We are, we are so out of time, Dan. Any, any final thoughts on paranoia? Okay, let me just throw up. So, Laura, a while back, our viewer Lor Sudo had a comment that I wanted to get on on screen, and uh, what he said was, uh, "This paranoia game was fun satire when I was sixteen. I think it's too realistic to be enjoyable to me to play at fifty three. Ah. And I, right? Ah. I told, I, ah. I really feel that. I really feel home. that. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, paranoia really, you know, gave me some lessons for running, you know, running games. One of them was mechanics matter, right? The, if you're if you're promising a quick death mayhem game, and then the combat table winds up being almost no injuries at all ever, right? That's out of sync, and that's gonna that's gonna sandbag your game. So mechanics do matter. Make sure that the play mm -hmm. actually is what you're promising for the game. Uh, two player agency has got to be at the table. I have accidentally run an adventure yeah. in Paranoia that didn't have that, and it was the worst thing possibly happened. And uh, three, fiction writing is not the same thing as adventure writing. 
And to me, those have been really influential, I don't know, you know, uh, traumas that that paranoia inflicted <laughs> upon me. And I, I thank it greatly because I think that's improved my gaming a lot. Yeah, yeah. I would, I, I mean, for and for me, I want to pick on your, your, your second point there of like, yes, I totally agree. Agency is super important. That doesn't mean you can't give them an impossible task. That doesn't mean that you can't have a, se a series of events in your games that are inevitable. You can have those things, but allow your players to do whatever they want about it. I agree. I like that a lot. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, if um, viewers, if you have any thoughts on Paranoia, the various editions, uh, how it's changed over time, uh, how to how to achieve. So the, the three points, where did props come from in Paranoia? Where, what is the origin of that? And why do we all feel like we need props in our games? Leave us uh, some your thoughts in the comment section of the YouTube video. Uh, maybe we'll do a follow-up uh, at some point, because I do feel like we just barely, as always, just barely scraped the surface of this topic and the hour's up. Maybe we should play it on time. You know, I gotta say, to, leave, to end on a positive note, the setting's great. The, the, the setting's so great, and the fact that you know I get a reaction from it, our viewers like Lorsudo get such a strong reaction from it. They they really they really hit the zeitgeist about something important, and the the setting's wonderful when you get to share it with somebody. Uh, of course, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us. We're on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, GitHub, and TikTok. Uh, we do have the handle Wandering the M's on all those sites. So look for the share, and you'll get updates about upcoming shows. If you prefer to listen to our shows in audio-only podcast format, you can find those podcasts on our website at wanderingdms.com or through various podcast carriers such as iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. Uh, if you're listening to this show right now on one of those third-party sites and they give you the option to do so, please rate and review our show. That really helps other users of that site find our show, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And as usual, big thanks to our patrons who support the show here. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. You'll see our different tiers. In particular, like Paul said at the top of the show, every tier gets you access to our Discord server where the conversation continues all the time. And you get to join in our live video after chat that we're going to have in about 10 minutes on our Discord server. So we'll look forward to seeing you then. Um, later this week, right, I'll be back Thursday with more Book of War Gaming with Dan Cullinan. And by viewer request on Discord, what's been requested is that I take an army of just normal, mundane, real-world men and take on an army by Dan Cullinan that has anything at all, including dragons and wizards and lords and liches and giants and anything else, see if... Uh, I can make a balanced fight out of that. So I've got my army picked out already for Thursday, and uh, I look forward to a challenge, and that's what's going to happen on Thursday, so please tune in then. Um, we are taking a couple weeks off once in a while this summer, so I believe that next Sunday is one of those days. Am I, am I right about that, Paul? Uh, that is true. Yep, okay. we'll be back in two weeks, uh, I think on July 30th. Yeah, exactly. So we'll look forward to seeing everybody then. Uh, not on next Sunday, but we'll run uh, in two weeks, like Paul just said. So yeah, we're live uh, most Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again in two weeks for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you.